Welcome to No-Go Area, the podcast that takes you to places where we probably shouldn't go. And you never know, it might just get dirty. Evening, Phil. Evening, Spence. How are you doing, mate? Not too bad, mate. Yeah, how about you? Pretty good. Uh, have you had uh, much of a busy week? Uh, yeah, a little bit here and there. Uh, my back's getting a little bit better. Uh, it's got a little bit worse today, but not too bad, though. Not too bad. But you've got all the, all the right um, medical support, I'm guessing? Just about, yeah, yeah. just about. So, so semi-tripping? Semi, yeah, semi's the right word. Yeah, okay, you, I, bet, I bet you've been hammering that fretless bass, though. I have, yeah. So I've got some new songs to learn um, for a few new bands, um, hopefully. And I've just been doing it all on the new fretless, and it's been great. It's been really good. You know, I, I auditioned a guy for a band once and he turned up with a fretless and I thought, ah, oh, jeez, man, this this isn't going to work because, you know, it was pretty much a rock pop band and, uh, God, fuck me, all I can say is, right, he hit every fucking note, bang on, no sliding into the notes and I was just astonished and and it was a, it was a P-bass setup but fretless. Yeah. I, I was just blown away, uh, absolutely blown away. And then somebody later told me that he's, he, I mean, he was in, incredibly difficult to communicate with. And, and it turned out that he was uh, very, very heavily on the spectrum. So uh, that may be what it was with him. You know, he was just one of those people who was so focused, you know. Yeah. He literally couldn't make a mistake, you know. Oh, wow. <laughs> He he, uh, he was also extremely focused on money and um, wanted to know exactly what his salary was. And I said, well, it's not going to be a salary, mate. It's going to be as and, as and when we can get it and what we can get. And uh, so he didn't turn up again. Uh, I've, done, I've done that with a few bands. <laughs> yeah. Well, for a salary. <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, if they, you know, if this is a band that's actually gigging all the time and making lots of money and big venues, then fair enough. Yeah, yeah. yeah we we were a really, really tight band. Uh, probably did six gigs a year, though. That was it. Mm. Uh, I don't know why. I, I guess there were some people in the band who were just totally unreliable. And you yeah. Know, you'd, you'd, whatever gigs you threw at them, they wouldn't be able to make it. You know, no, or, no. Or they wouldn't turn up on the night and cause an absolute mayhem. I hate know. that. I hate that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> so, anyway. I've, I've got four gigs lined up this year so far. Well, I think two of them are with, with the Navarones, aren't they? Three. Three. Oh, there we are. Three. <laughs> Three. Excellent. Great stuff. Yeah. Looking well, that'll be good. That'll be I good. don't think I'll use my fretless for them, though. No, it probably <laughs> wouldn't be the right thing for, for that, but yeah. No. That'll be great. <laughs> so, um, I, I decided... Um, this week that I was going to be brave and try out a dating site right Uh, okay now I don't really have any intentions of dating because I consider myself to be um, undateable (laughs) so uh, it's not it's not like I have a a string of terms and conditions right Um, no 
I can I can tell you now though that my younger brother, who he's eight years younger than me, when when he was dating before he got married, he actually had a list of terms and conditions and requirements oh. and female specifications and you name it. And I, I just said, Man, Jesus Christ! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it must be able to play piano duets, that type of thing, you know. So, mm. uh, yeah. <laughs> I know. It was, that's me out for the count anyway. So. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So I don't have a list of requirements, uh, um, but I just know that um, most people out there would have a list of requirements that I wouldn't be able to fulfill, you know, and that's what, oh, makes, okay. that's what makes me undateable, really. So um, I decided, because it's been fucking bothering me for some time to have a look at facebook dating right right now my big worry about facebook dating um was privacy because i'm a very private person actually you yes know? yeah and i i don't apart from the fact that i'm not actually looking to date anybody i this was just a test but i don't want really people that i'm friends with on facebook knowing that i'm on a dating site okay no no um especially as you know with facebook sometimes you have you know well i've got a couple of thousand friends but i don't know most of them you know no no yeah but i do know sort of vaguely know some of them who may turn up to gigs right ah. and like so i wasn't i was a little bit anxious now because Facebook dating says, oh, well, we won't share the fact that you're on the dating site with anybody on your friends list, right? Okay, so, yeah. So, okay, result, I'm happy, I'm happy with that. I'll, I'll go ahead. Yeah. So the other thing I decided right, is that because this was a test, that I wouldn't have any limits, right? Um, now, all, I'm, all I was ever going to do on there was put a picture of myself on there the very minimal amount of information about myself, right? Yeah. Because I'm not looking to date anybody. Um, so it was mostly just a photograph of me, and, you know, I guess anybody could look me up on Facebook if they wanted to. Yeah. So um, the other thing I decided is because, um, you know, if, like, I know quite a few people now who've said to me in the past that, um, when they when they date somebody, it's not about the gender; it's about the person, right? Which to right. me is a very twenty first century thing. And I thought yeah. to myself, well, perhaps I should be a twenty first century person. You know, um, you know, it's like it's like when you when you meet people who say, "Oh, don't do the internet, laddie. I'm seventy years old now." Anyway. <laughs> Well, maybe a bloody should, you know. Yeah. Uh, I got a, a friend of mine who always used to say, "Don't knock it till you've tried it, Jack." Right. And I used to think, "Oh, okay." So, so I thought, right, okay. Now I also know um, quite a few youngsters, millennials particularly, who like say, me. "What?" Yes, like yeah, of course, <laughs> yeah. Who say things like, um, "What that they're pansexual?" You know. Now I I didn't know what that meant and. 
you know, I Googled a couple of um, kitchenware websites and uh, it turns out it's nothing to do with saucepans. So um, I thought, okay, well, look, you know, perhaps there shouldn't be a stick in the mud. So I'm not going to put any filters on this website, on this dating thing. I'm just going to click because, you you know, you can do, I think it says men or women or not really bothered. Right. There is a topic like that or a category like that. So, okay. No, yeah. Not, yeah. not really bothered. No. Okay. So I, I was immediately inundated with, with fellas. And uh, in, in a way, that, that was quite funny, really, because uh, I've never considered myself to be attractive to anybody, let alone um, uh, gay men, you know? So, yeah. Uh, Perhaps it was the, uh, the 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 skinhead look that uh, did it. I don't know. Oh, maybe in my maybe. profile picture. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, then there were a load of uh, women who were. I I shouldn't say. I am going to say it because this is no go area. Right? I'm going to fucking say it. They looked haggard okay. and haggard and desperate oh, for the most part. Um, and. This is when I, I started to have full on panic attacks, right? Because I was oh, I was shit. getting I was getting messages then from these fellas, right? <laughs> uh, and and I, I felt the need to reply and 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 t- tell them in all honesty that you know well I'm really sorry, but I you know this was an experiment. Um, a because I wanted to see exactly what Facebook dating did, and whether yeah. it does what it says on the tin. Uh, B to see whether I am actually attractive to anybody, um, and so on and so forth. And I, jeez, the one the one guy was, I think he was really upset about it. And I almost I almost said to him, "Oh look, okay, I'll I'll go on a date with you." <laughs> <laughs> But I, I, I didn't, and um, I just kept apologising, and eventually he, he sort of deleted his account, I think, and I, oh. I feel really bad about that, really bad. You know, I got a message up saying, oh, he's deleted his account, and I thought, oh, no, no. I don't know why you do that unless you, you'd sort of gone on there thinking, you know, well, I'm, I'm not on the scene, and, you know, and all of a sudden it looks like somebody might have outed him, you know. Uh, yeah. Mm. Oh, geez, that's bad news. So I, I've got quite a few regrets about that. But you know, this is a public service as well, right? As far as I'm concerned, yeah. because you suddenly notice that there are um, people popping up, and they're not on your friends list, but it tells you that they are friends of some of your friends, right? Ooh. No, no, that really pissed me off because I suddenly thought, bloody hell, you know, they might turn up to my gigs now, right? Yeah. And and this this is the other terrible thing about it, right? You, it's it just seems to be very very difficult to navigate. You know, a photograph comes up of a person who's liked your picture, right? Right. And. I like I, I'm trying to scroll past it, right, to see who's next. But in touching their picture as I'm trying to scroll, I've actually liked it, right? Um, 
and you think, oh shit, God, I've gone bloody like that now. Now there's only like three buttons under the screen. One of them's a cross, one of them seems to be a star, and the other one is is a heart or something. And you're like, oh, geez, right, I didn't mean to do that. And I, and this this is what happened with with it only happened once. I'm going to state this now with this fella, right? I thought, well, I, I just gonna have to try and press this middle button on you and see what happens. And I pressed it and it came up, you're a match. Right? <laughs> <laughs> oh fuck. Right. So now, you know, and that was a guy I had to really apologize to. I was like, oh mate, look, I'm really sorry. I, I didn't what I'm doing with this thing. Uh, and this yeah. was a, a social experiment and it's all gone horribly on bloody, bloody, blah, you know? So, um, yeah, so I would say if you're thinking of doing Facebook dating, fucking don't, okay? Because, I mean, like I said, I wasn't looking to date, but even if I was, what really, really, really bothered me about it is the fact that there may be people turning up to my gigs, right, who think, oh, well, he's single, blah blah um, and I've seen him on Facebook dating, and I might have a very awkward time at gigs trying to explain to them that, no, I'm not actually looking to date anybody. That was just an experiment and, you know, for my podcast, blah, blah. And I'm very, very sorry. Uh, and I just think they may not believe me. They may think I'm just a horrible person who doesn't like them, you know. Possibly, yeah. You know, the last thing I want at a gig is to have somebody slapping me across the face. Exactly. Yeah. So um, I I deleted my account after a few days. After a few days. Oh, geez, no. No. I don't like that, but it shows, you know, friends of friends that can get you into all sorts of serious situations. (laughs) Well, of course it can, you know. I mean, my my private life is entirely private, and I want to keep it that way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, although my ex was in the is in the band still in the band our private life was never up for discussion you know not even even amongst band members you know and that's the way it should be really absolutely yeah yeah. so so there we go my experiment into dating and launching myself into the 21st century was was a fucking disaster (laughs) back to the victorian ages for you (laughs) <laughs> I, exactly, exactly. Never again. Oh. But I've often That's thought terrible. that, uh, yeah, I've often thought that if I if I do any kind of dating again, that uh, it would have to be somebody who doesn't like going on dates. <laughs> and I think we'd hit it off then. Yeah, <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. Oh Christ! So <laughs> have you ever have you ever been through anything like that yourself? Um, uh, not like dangerously or something that didn't happen but um i met my current girlfriend um of many years on tinder um all right and yeah, that worked out really well um yeah. yeah it was great um it worked for me uh obviously it's not going to work for everyone um but you know a lot of youngsters and sort of people my age as well um uh, sort of like sub 30 do find you know their partners on dating apps now Right, um, and it's just you know I'm a bit socially awkward, um, so it's an easier way to meet people, I suppose. Um, yeah. It worked for me. Yeah, yeah, it's just a new way of dating. 
yeah. Just a new way of dating. That's all you can I say mean, about it, really. <laughs> I did. I did try a dating site many years ago where you where you you had to uh, write in to the oh. dating site and send in your photographs and stuff like that and all your details yeah. and then and then you'd get a um, uh, a letter back done on on a very very bad bubble jet printer um <laughs> with a very grainy photograph of of somebody in their 80s <laughs> oh, no. yeah yeah, disaster. So I, oh, I, I don't even know why I was doing that at the time. I think I was lonely, to be honest. I had a girlfriend at the time who, well, I thought she was a girlfriend. Turned out to be what we now call a fuck buddy, who oh, would t- turn up when she needed a damn good scene to. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just not that kind of person, really. You know, I, I'm. I wouldn't say I'm overly sensitive. I just don't respond well to the casual fuck thing you know oh no so uh, a lot of people don't a lot of people do like i said you know everyone's different um but yeah I, i'm not either at all <laughs> no i I've, I've never been any good at that My, i've got a mate of mine who's who's just legendary for it you know and and i said to him the one day uh, a couple of years ago i said um have you noticed as you've got older that your standards have dropped a bit? To which he replied, what standards? Oh, fucking hell. And, well, <laughs> that, that does just about sum him up, actually. I mean, he's he's got no no defined mm. standards. Um, so, you know, he, if, if you want to have lots of sexual partners, I mean, that's the way to go, really. I've never wanted to be like that. So, Yeah, I suppose so. Yeah, I'm nothing that appeals to me at all. No, no, <laughs> no, no, I'm happy are. as I am. Yep, so, um, I think that just about covers my um, bloody awful uh, attempts at uh, <laughs> sussing out a dating site. Yeah, so, uh, I think we need to talk about your dish of the day, which is uh, yes. The death of Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. Oh, well, I didn't know you were there at the time, uh, or responsible. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> no, not responsible. No. Nothing to do with me. So, in in what way is there a, a connection between you and Prince Philip, and, and why would he even be interested in it? <laughs> so, I followed, uh, I wouldn't say I'm a royalist, um, or an anarchist. <laughs> neither way really um, but I did have a sort of uh, interest in the royal family for a time still do um, but I met uh, Prince Philip two or three times I'm still I still been racking my brains if it is two or three uh, I'm not quite sure um, but I met him in the capacity um, as a naval officer um, yeah. first time when I actually passed out as an officer and he was there to take the salute at the time. I always, always loved that expression when you passed out. <laughs> yeah. I, as as somebody who has um, got a rather unfortunate history of passing out, I think oh, maybe I, I should have been a general by now. But, yeah. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, because um, uh, Prince Philip, he was a, a very well and highly decorated naval officer in his own career. 
and he kept a very big and very vast interest in sort of naval goings on. Um, and, you know, with his honorary titles and his rank, um, he was able to take the salute. And it was one of the greatest days of my life. Um, not personally meeting him, even though that was part of it, um, but him taking the salute from all of us who were just passed out and become Royal Naval officers for the first time. Yeah, I suppose if, if he hadn't been able to make it, would, would they have sent somebody else? Oh, there'd be some sort of admiral there. <laughs> some nobody. Not as good. Yeah, exactly. Not as good as Prince Philip then. Oh, no. Um, okay, the Queen has done it on occasion. Um, Princess Anne has done it loads of times. And apparently she's really, uh, really good at it. Um, uh, a great person, um, naval-wise. Um, she understands it all. Um, I think Prince Andrew's done it once or twice <laughs> also. Um, but if it's not a member of the royal family, um, it'd just be some sort of uh, naval admiral or higher rank. Right, okay. Um, who's either a lord or got a knighthood or something normally. Yeah. <laughs> but it's a very special occasion when a member of the royal family does it. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. And I got to speak to him as well. That's nice. great. Yeah. In an informal manner. Um, were you shaking like a leaf at the time? Uh, no, not really. Um, so before we passed out, so while we were getting ready, we were told uh, immediately beforehand that he would be the one taking the salute, inspecting us and having a general chat with us. That's when we shat ourselves, uh, when we were getting dressed and getting ready. Yeah. Uh, but as the day, as well, as the hours went on, um, we heard stories from other officers there who'd met him before and said, oh, it's perfectly fine. He knows what he's doing. He's a naval man, uh, born and bred. Um, he, he'll just have a laugh with you. That's exactly what he done. <laughs> I've always looked at him and thought that he was possibly a bit of a lad on the side. I think so. I really do think so. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of stories uh, out there about, you know, his personal goings on around the world and such, and some of his sort of uh, escapades in the Navy. Uh, and he, he did seem like a lad. He definitely did. <laughs> so what what do, you, what do you know about him then? Oh, story-wise? Yeah. Uh, woman in every port, allegedly. Uh, <laughs> taking control of ships um, when, when he was married uh, to our queen um, when she was coronated, that he had no uh, interest in or any sort of authority of taking control of. Um, just for a laugh, really, and taking yeah. them on sort of joyrides around the world, including the Royal Yacht at one point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is great. And, you know, playing extreme sports on ships and in officers' wardrooms as well. I've heard, I've heard of rugby um, on the main table in an officers' wardroom, wow. <laughs> which sounds like a hell of a laugh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now, he... Um... He did sort of um, go off on lads' holidays, you know. With, he did, the yeah. Queen. Oh, absolutely. I don't know if she sent him away, possibly. <laughs> I couldn't blame her. Um, but, yeah, he used to go around, uh, especially on the Royal Yacht. You'd take a few sailors. Um, you'd handpick them as the crew. Yeah. Um, and they'd go on these little tours around around the world, really, around the Commonwealth. Um, he'd do his official thing, you know, representing the Queen and the Crown. 
and then they just have a laugh with you know whoever's out and about around there. And at one point, I think they had uh, this sort of like own Olympic Games um, at all the different places that they stopped. Um, so they, all the the natives and all from all the countries that they visited, they do like a little Olympic Games, which seemed quite fun, which obviously included heavy drinking as well. <laughs> well, it wouldn't be a sport without that, would it? Well, no, no. Apparently, they were playing cricket. Um, everywhere tug of rope um rugby football just all over the world just as a laugh fantastic <laughs> great yeah I, I know he did um quite a few voyages uh where he he took an artist friend of his with him oh. and uh they were actually both painters because he he took up painting Yes. And, um, I, I mean, I've seen some of his artwork and thought, well, yeah, I mean, I could do that. <laughs> but, and, and I am no artist at all. But no. the artist that he took with him, whose name escapes me, um, actually rated him. Uh, you hmm. know, so, That's and pretty I, cool. Yeah, yeah. But they would, they would go and um, paint portraits of each other on, on deck and stuff. <laughs> Now, yeah, I, I can't imagine trying to paint with the with the swell of the show. No, yeah. that seems quite <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite a bold move, <laughs> especially yeah. when the weather turns. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it would be a bit like um, women who try to put the makeup on when you're driving down a bumpy road. You know that type of thing. Yeah, especially when you're doing portraits, you're going up and down, and you end up yeah. like a Picasso. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's well, cool though. That's cool. Yeah, I mean, but he he used to go on these lads' jollies, it seems, and um, I don't know whether that was just the Queen's way of saying, "Look, okay, you know, you've had to give up your naval career for me. I'm I'm happy for you to go away." And maybe she did need to see the back of him for a bit, or maybe what? The only thing I I gotta say is that uh, I had this mate. Um, who I'm still in touch with, but we haven't seen each other for a bit, who was married long before I ever was. Yeah. And every year he used to say to me, right, where are we going in the summer? And I used to say, well, hang on a minute, mate, you know, you're you're married. Uh, <laughs> are you sure your wife's okay with this? Yeah, 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 she'll be fine, she'll be fine. And he used to always used to suggest something like a Club 1830 holiday. And I was like, mate, that, that's, that's for people who are, you know, looking for casual sex, right? You know, yeah. that, beer drinking, casual sex, that's it. There's no other reason to go. No. And, and uh, I used to make an excuse every year not to go. And I started to run out of excuses, right? Oh, now, the reason, the reason I was making these excuses is two reasons. First of all, I didn't want to go on a Club 1830 holiday because I'm not that type of person. No. Um, you know, I wasn't always single either, you know, so sometimes I had a girlfriend and I didn't think she'd approve of that very much. But also, um, his wife seemed to absolutely hate me and I, I had no idea why until several years yeah. later. But as I said, I was starting to run out of excuses, you know, um, so the one year he said, right, where are we going in summer? So I said, you know what? I've had a really terrible year, which I had. I said, I just want a couple of weeks down in D 
Devon or Cornwall, I'm just going to take a tent and I'm going to do a bit of fishing. You know, I'd never fished in my life. I thought that's, I'm going to, you know, sounds yeah. like, yeah. and it was the kind of thing I thought, yeah, I might just do that actually. So it wasn't a, a made up story or anything. It was, I thought, yeah, I, I might actually do this. Hmm. 20 minutes later, and, and I'm not exaggerating or anything, 20 minutes later, there's a knock on the door. I opened the door, and he stood there with two fishing rods. <laughs> and, <I> went, <laughs> and he just literally bought them um, in in a second-hand shop. Um, I think it was second to none in Canton or something down in Cardiff. Right. And, and they were boat rods. I mean, these, these oh, things no. could, could haul a whale out of the water. Yeah. So, so not exactly your average beach caster. Yeah. And and the next thing I know, we were on that holiday, right? And it was the holiday from hell because he said to me, right, I'll plan all the campsites. And I was thinking, well, hang on a minute. I, I was just thinking, pitch up in a farmer's field somewhere five yeah. at night, right? But he planned all these holiday parks, right? Of course, yeah. we were turning up there and they were saying, oh, we're not having two lads here. You know, this is a family park. <laughs> yeah and and we had to negotiate really hard to get in these places you know because by the time you we were getting there you had time to pitch the tent and go to bed sort of thing you know yeah so uh that that was a nightmare and um and we went out and did a couple of fishing trips on boats and stuff and literally the one day we'd been out early in the morning on a on a fishing boat one of the roughest seas i've ever been on where everybody puked except me and there were, there were people snagging their fishing lines on each other's lines and oh. doing this kind of seesawing thing from on each side of the boat, going, oh, I'm in, I'm in. And they, they just <laughs> caught each other's lines, you know. And yeah. there was, oh, God, there was puke everywhere. And it wasn't until we were coming back into the harbour and, and I was tying up the fish that I threw up. I don't know what it was, but that's what got me. Anyway, um we we had to pull a tent up then and move on to another campsite that he'd planned. And uh, we got there and negotiated our way in. And uh, he said, oh, I'm just going to go and uh, ring the missus um, while you clean the fish and what have you. So we we put the tent up. I was cleaning the fish. And all of a sudden he came back and he goes, we got to go. Oh, I said, what? what's happened? I said, I thought we've, we were cool here. You know, we've negotiated our way in. And, no, 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 we got to go. We got to go. Julie wants a divorce. Oh, right? shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So I gave the fish to this family in a tent by the side of us, pulled the tent up real quick, jumped in the car, his car. He drove in silence at 120 mile an hour all the way back from Cornwall to, uh, actually, we might have been in Devon by then, but it doesn't, it doesn't matter, all the way back to Newport where he was living. Uh, got pulled up outside his house. The house is empty. Right with a for sale sign up. Oh, absolute! I was like, "Oh shit!" I said, "Didn't didn't you? Surely Julie was fine with you going away for two weeks with me. I mean, surely that was the." He went, "Well, I thought she'd have been fine." I said, "Well, didn't you even have a discussion?" He went, "No." What oh, man alive? <laughs> yeah. Just left. Yeah, yeah. So um, you know. That's, I'm, I'm just thinking, did Prince Philip do the same thing? Did he just jump on a boat and then <laughs> ring the Queen, you know, a week later and go, 
oh yeah forgot to mention i'm, I'm in australia in... yeah <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah possibly possibly well, i'm guessing you uh, I had a, yeah i had a friend once a musician um and i booked him for we were going on tour uh, and he said, oh, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, um, I've got all my stuff. Uh, he was a drummer. Uh, you'll have to pick me up around the corner from his house. Strange. And he's, yeah, and he's very sketchy. He's like, great, get it all in quick. Get all the equipment in and bundled him in into the van. And I think the first services we stopped, then he explained then he hadn't told his missus that he was going on tour. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> And all our phones started going then about two or three days later. Or oh, have you seen him? And we were like, no, <laughs> we don't know where he is. Oh, jeez. I mean, did he get away with that? No, no, he didn't. No. no. It was a stupid idea in the first place. I don't know how he got his drums out of his house without his missus knowing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a difficult one, that isn't it? It's not it's, I mean easy enough to sneak a microphone out if you're a singer. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Whole drum kit, different kettle of fish, that. Yeah, definitely. But no, maybe, you know, Prince Philip was sent away or perhaps he, you know, went on these little jollies without telling anyone. Uh, only telling his private secretary who probably went with him. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> you know, what what do we know about his, his origins? You know, I mean, how did he even come to be part of our royal family? He's a man of the world, really. Um, especially in when you go into like his birth and his upbringing. Um, yeah. Um, so he's born in Corfu. Um, he's a prince of Greece to start with, um, Denmark, and then us then is uh, Great Britain, uh, United Kingdom. Um, but yeah, he had a really, really funny sort of upbringing. Um, it mixed sort of lots of royal families at the time, um, which is quite, quite interesting in itself. Um, I was watching something earlier about him being born in Corfu and they had the dining table that he was born on wow. for some reason. Yeah, and I think some sort of like antiques roadshow bloke came on and tried to value it. <laughs> Just I turned it off. <laughs> that, that's that's insane, isn't it? I mean, you know, and, unless it's still got the imprint of his, his mother's ass cheeks oh, on it, <laughs> you know, I, who can say for real whether that actually happened or not? I, there's a bill of sale apparently that's turned up. Uh, I I don't believe that. I... <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're going to buy something like that, you do want some provenance with it, and and I would only settle for photographic evidence or an imprint of his mother's butt cheeks. <laughs> that's, yeah. that's it. And, and, yeah. and and I'd have to be able to verify that they were her butt cheeks as well. Oh yeah, absolutely. With DNA testing these days, I think. I don't know how, you know, if the top of the table wasn't finished, if there would be DNA sort of, you know, embedded most, in it. Most unlikely, I'd say, you know, you know. Yeah. Uh, I'm not buying it. It's not my style of table. I think it was a Queen Anne style table. It came with right. the chairs, though, so. <laughs> well, I, I, well I, I'm sold, yeah. <laughs> oh, but, yeah, no. his upbringing, because um, he was born in Corfu, uh, which is quite nice. Um but his family were from all over the place, really. Uh, and that's what, you know, it's quite interesting. Yeah. Oh, his, his mother was, um, she was a granddaughter of Queen Victoria, right? Yeah. Which, which is 
what makes the Queen and Prince Philip actually distant cousins. That's right, right yes. Now, his mother's name was Alice Battenberg, and um, she was uh, from Denmark, I think. And yes, um, and in fact, she was. She, I think she was a princess of Denmark. Right. Yes, I think she was. Yeah, but now the thing was when she married his father, um, he then became. Although the father was a prince of Greece. He also became a prince of Denmark then by marriage. Right? Yeah. So this is how, uh, like, Prince Philip himself, even though he was known as Philip of Greece, um, he he was able to have a Danish passport. Mm. Yeah, yeah. He was in, basically he was Prince uh, Philip of Greece and Denmark at the same time. It may well have saved cool. his life, you know. <laughs> yeah, I think so. I really do. Because um, essentially, uh, I think when he was two years old, um, or one, he, actually, he might have been one years old, they basically had to get out of Greece. And um, so he, he apparently was put in an orange crate uh, oh, and yeah. spirited away. It's a bit like the Moses story, really, isn't it? I'm not sure how much of that I believe. If you're from a wealthy mm. family, surely you'd have something a little bit better than an orange crate, you know? Like maybe, yeah, you'd think so. Yeah, you know. I mean, mm. like, like if I was going to have to smuggle one of my children out when they were little babies, I, I don't think I'd have to resort to an orange crate. No, uh, no. Yeah. no. But it's a nice story. It's a nice story. It is story. a nice story, and there might be some truth to it. Who knows? Yeah. Well, I see now, I wonder if whether possibly there was a bit of miscommunication there because, you know, his mother was profoundly deaf. Oh, yeah. And she communicated through sign language, and, and she could sign in several different languages, which is, I think, is bloody remarkable. That is really cool. Yeah. So yeah, His mother was a hell of a person. Uh, she had a very good... Uh, well, a very sort of dramatic life, um, looking at, you know, all the achievements that she's done. Uh, and she seemed like a pretty decent woman, um, to be fair to her, and quite an excitable woman as well. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, she ended up being committed to a mental institution. Yeah. When when he was only nine years old. Um, I'm told that Sigmund Freud treated her. Oh. Um, she was she was thought to have something called neurotic pre-psychotic libidinous condition. Oh, I can't say that. Libidinous condition. Um, so the treatment for that, uh, that Freud recommended, was X-ray exposure to the gonads. Oh Christ! Well, this is kind of where I, I might be learning something here because I thought only only men had gonads. So yeah, <laughs> I'm not really. I'm a bit. I should have I should have looked that up actually. Female gonads, but yeah. uh, I haven't done. Hmm. But I mean, the the bottom line was she was schizophrenic. You know, there was yeah. 
which is really, really sad. But um, she, um, I mean, most of his life, uh, early life, she wasn't present really. No. Because he got sent away. She was in a mental institution, you know. Um, you know, you, you know where he was educated, don't you? Yes. Yeah. So, oh, she got the, in Paris to start with, um, like most of the aristocracy of the time, um, and then sent over to the UK for his sort of start of his formal, formal education, um, which is quite nice. Uh, the Cheen School, which I don't think is still going. I'm not quite sure if Cheen is still going. Um, yeah, it is. <laughs> oh, that's clever. Yeah. Uh, and then on to Gordonston, which is a formidable uh, establishment. Uh, I've been, uh, that's in rural Scotland, isn't it? It is, yes. And that's still, that's definitely still going. Yeah. It's yeah, a school I mean, based on principles. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, they, they, they would get them up at 6 a.m. And, and then they had to sort of learn to sail and they were always made to take cold showers. Or, it's like a ball stall for the. <laughs> for posh kids. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Apparently, this way he sort of became a man, um, and seemed like a good, you know, quite a good sort of prep school really for later in life. I think Prince Charles went there for a term or two um, before he dropped out. Um, he when did, he was a child. and and because Prince Philip sent him there, but uh, he flew him up there, I think, after yeah. his first term. Yeah, and that the Queen didn't like that at all. She didn't want Charles going there, but. I I think he should have done the the full his full time there because it would perhaps have made him more of a man. Maybe. Seems you know, like, yeah. They they were doing things in that school that you don't get to do in a lot of normal schools. Oh, and absolutely. I, and there may have been an element of I don't know um, harshness to some of the things they had to endure. Um, yeah. But but it's it's a little bit like um, doing national service, really. I suppose. You know? <laughs> yeah, I suppose it is in a way. Yeah, because na- national service always always you know you have to go and do it, and you know you you become a grown up when you're doing things like that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And not that I've ever done it, but I mean, you know, I I I can say that you know I, I did do uh, like the army cadets and stuff when I was 13 and and that turned me into more of a man than than I would have been otherwise you know especially oh, absolutely. yeah not not the square bashing and not so much the discipline but but having to do hardships you know yeah exactly yeah it was doing things you know doing as you're told and you know doing things that you may not like yeah. or understand um but yeah same with my military service um made me a better man than i was when i went in uh, in a way uh, mentally um but not physically unfortunately well, <laughs> as we know because of my back <laughs> yeah well yeah that's an unfortunate side effect of course and yeah. uh, um i mean you you might have even still been in the service now if, if it wasn't for that i probably well, would be 
I yeah. probably I'm still in the reserves, um, but I'm not fit for active duty. Yeah. Um, but if I wasn't injured, I would definitely still be in there in the armed forces um, in some capacity. Definitely. Yeah. So the thing is, you know, my, my uh, training in the army cadets and there was some later stuff as well, uh, but certainly those early years. And, and I, I, I tell people to this day, you know, the British army ta- taught me uh, many different methods of killing people. And uh, yeah, it's never really left me. You know, no. it, it it's something where you you actually learn about the fragility of life and yes. how easy it is to, to take somebody's life or to lose your own. And yeah. they they teach you actually how to be disciplined when you may actually be the least disciplined person in the world, which I am. I, I'm I have no self discipline at all until I force myself to do things. Um, yeah. You know, I am I am the laziest person you'll ever meet who isn't lazy. You know, I I, yeah. have, to, I have to force myself not to be lazy. Uh, you know, and sometimes I have to force myself to be the leader of men and, and not the follower. Yeah. You know, sometimes I have to strategize about situations and try and outfox the opponent. And, and that's all things that the military taught me. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, and I, I am very grateful for that. I am incredibly grateful for it. Otherwise, I think I would have been uh, one of those people that got trampled in life otherwise. Yeah, I, I feel that way. Um, yeah. I think the military service um, just sort of moulded me uh, into the person I am today. Obviously, I've got my flaws and everything, but... Uh, yeah, I think you've done me, done me good. <laughs> well, well, you know, as another example, uh, I wouldn't have been a gigging musician if it hadn't been for the British Army because I had no self-confidence at all. Um, no. And I couldn't hide that fact, you know. Um, but then the British Army sort of gave me the confidence to at least look like I wasn't shitting myself, you know, and, and yeah. so, so I could suddenly, I mean, the thought of performing in front of people who may be, you know, musicians themselves sometimes, you know, in the crowd pulling you to pieces and, you know, and, and there were harsh criticisms in my early gigging career, you know, there's no doubt about that. No. But, but that discipline that the forces gives you, and and the the ability to override your own fears and insecurities, I think, is priceless. Absolutely. And that brings me on to, you know, this this thing about his Prince Philip's schooling leading on to the Duke of Edinburgh Awards. Yeah. I mean, that was basically modelled on what he did himself in uh, Gordonston School. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I undertook the Duke of Edinburgh Award. Uh, I undertook one. I didn't go through to do all of them. Um, but it was it was great. Um, uh, you know, he's a man about doors. Um, and, you know, with the schooling that he had and took away from Gordonston and uh, was encouraged to start this uh, achievement sort of scheme, 
uh, it's great. And it's gone all the way around the world as well. I was watching things and it's in so many countries and so many people have done it. It's incredible. It really is. To me, it was a logical extension of what you would have done in the, the Scouts. Yeah, yeah, I think so, yeah. <laughs> That's where I'd done mine, uh, when I was in the Scouts. All <laughs> oh, right. okay. See, yeah. now, I, I was allowed to be in the Cub Scouts, um, right. but then... We, we moved from the town I lived in to Cardiff and I wasn't allowed to join the Scouts then for some reason. Oh. Uh, I had two weeks in the Boys' Brigade, um, but that didn't work out. And I didn't like the Boys' Brigade. They were very heavily sort of influenced, I think, by the church uh, the Methodist Church, I think. I, I'm, I'm not 100% certain about that, but that's certainly where we used to have our boys' brigade meetings in the Methodist Church. Hmm. Didn't enjoy it. It wasn't like the, the Scouts or the Cubs, and it yeah. uh, uh, lasted two weeks. Uh, I think it was I think it was run by our next-door neighbour, and I think she asked my parents uh, to withdraw me. <laughs> oh, I see. <laughs> yes. Oh, yeah. So, so I, I never got to do Duke of Edinburgh Awards, but uh, I don't really regret that because pretty much everything they did there was covered by the uh, the army. Uh, yeah, cadet, yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. With a, with a little bit more. I don't know if, if anybody did any sort of shooting in the Duke of Edinburgh uh, Awards. You, you can... Um depending on sort of what you do really but there's a solid sort of fundamental of helping people um physical sort of fitness and prowess and leadership as well um leadership is one of the main parts and i think that's what he took away from gordonston uh, personally definitely so moving on from gordonston uh he uh applied to join the Royal Navy. Yes. Now, yeah. I think he was accepted into the Navy, of course, but yes, when it came to active service during wartime, he was initially told he wouldn't be allowed to serve. Yeah. Uh, it happens with a lot of royalty, and it also happens to a lot of people of sort of a mixed background as well. Um which is quite sad, really. Uh, I mean, a lot of royals have served uh, militarily, uh, especially recent times. Um, but yeah, um, being initially told, you know, you're going to be stationed on shore somewhere, you know, in a training sort of division, um, teaching recruits or, you know, basic skills to people and being landlocked. Um, it can't have been nice. I, I was landlocked for a lot of my career and I quite enjoyed it, uh, <laughs> which was nice. Was there yeah. any particular reason why you were landlocked? Uh, I preferred it. Um, so I I was very into what we call green skills, which is sort of land army skills. Um, so throughout my career, I was basically uh, <laughs> a soldier in a naval uniform, but I was wearing a sort of British army uniform at the same time. Uh, so I was wearing camouflage more than I was wearing uh, my pressed white shirt, tie and flat cap. <laughs> I think a lot of people don't realise that the Navy has actually got a tradition of that. You know, I mean, the, the whole idea was that you, you 
he pulled up on some distant shore and then got off and started fighting the locals. Absolutely, yeah. Um, one of the main things of that which I find absolutely horrific was the First World War, where um, sailors were forced to fight in the trenches in the Royal Naval Division. And the actual generals of the, the army at the time wouldn't give them green uniforms. So they were in the trenches in blue and white, which is absolutely horrific right. to think about. Your target straight away then, aren't you? You know. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. when you've got a nice white hat on. Yeah, it was a. Because re- they wouldn't give they wouldn't give them tin hats either. Well, that's outrageous. I mean, yeah, we we will have to talk about the First World War someday, but um, I think so. Yeah, the stupidity <laughs> that went on in that war <laughs> is just mind-boggling. It is. It really is. I mean, I've actually. It's crazy. It's yeah. Murderous suicidal and just crazy I've studied, from both sides from all sides absolutely. I would say. i've studied the first world war quite a lot yeah and most of the commanders i would have dismissed on day one oh, absolutely <laughs> as soon as those casualties start coming in uh, uh we, we will talk about this one day definitely yeah oh definitely definitely so yeah. <laughs> prince philip actually yeah. got to do active service in the end purely because Italy invaded Greece. Yes. And uh, from that moment on, Greece was no longer a neutral because no, they, it was they went drawn in. into the war, yeah. sadly and unfortunately, not in the best circumstances. But yet by that happening, it allowed him to enter active service, uh, which was great for him and what he ideally wanted to do. Um, Perfect for him. Um, he, he had quite a keen interest in sailing in Gordonstone, as that's one of the key skills. Um, and, you know, with the British royal family and most other royal families having military service and notably naval, um, you know, he, quite a good thing to get into, really, and something that he wanted to do. And throughout the Second World War, he served Admiral, well, really, Admiral Lee all over the place. Um, and in quite quite a few nice medals and awards here and there, which is nice. You know, I, I was um, quite surprised to find that his main job, uh, on, on I think on his first ship, was he was in charge of the uh, searchlights. Yes. Now, now, yeah, go on. Yeah, that's a bit complicated. So when, so he was an officer, so... He wasn't like sort of manning one searchlight. He would have been in charge of sailors who were manning searchlights. So he'd be given the commands of them. Uh, I don't doubt that he probably grabbed a searchlight and had to go for himself. <laughs> but yeah, that was one of his main responsibilities. And one that he got a lot of praise for as well. Well, of course, the searchlights weren't just used for, um, you know, highlighting aircraft overhead. Uh, he actually turned them on enemy shipping as well, the Italian ships, as a matter of fact. (laughs) Yes, which is, yeah, 50-50 is either going to work or it's going to end in disaster. Um, But the way that he'd done it, um, looking at, you know, the men mentioning dispatches and so on, he did it really, really well. Um, Pointing at, you know, enemy ships just so they could target them properly. And in the right places. Um, so he was basically the sighting system for the ship. 
which is incredible. And under the, all that pressure as well and being, you know, fired upon at the same time and being on deck, that must have been one hell of an experience. He, um, apparently he swung his searchlights down and, and they immediately found an Italian ship, which I almost couldn't believe. No, it's crazy. And then, and then yeah. they just pretty much found all of them. Uh, and uh, apparently it was an absolute turkey shoot. Or, oh, it's not to be. As they often say, like shooting fish in a barrel. And <laughs> yes. He, he didn't very often talk about these things, um, but he did once say that he felt absolutely dreadful because they decimated the Italians. And, Absolutely. You know, you've got to know then how many hundreds of men have met their deaths. Yeah, absolutely, definitely. I mean, at the time, um, the British Royal Navy, you know, it was a, the most formidable force at sea and had been for centuries. And comparing, you know, the Royal Navy to the Italian Navy at that time, uh, we were sort of years in advancement of technology and techniques and honed the skills. Uh, and it's it just incredible uh, the amount of sort of casualties that came out of that conflict. Uh, but like you said, you know, dreadful, you know, like shooting fish in a barrel. Um, you've got to do it to a certain extent because you're under attack, supposedly. Um, but, you know, morality comes into it again. Um and obviously, uh, something that's still taught now in the Royal Navy um, is once the firing's over, the firing's over, and you go out and you collect survivors um, from enemy ships as soon and as safe as possible. Yeah. Um, now, the thing is, this is a bit of a problem, I suppose, <laughs> for him, is that he was the youngest of his siblings yeah and i believe he was the only son all the rest were sisters right yes and quite a few of them were married to nazis that's right I, that's right i believe they were all married to germans yeah they're all married to germans and a few to actual nazi uh, party members yeah yes now out out of respect for Prince Philip. Um, we're not actually going to go into great detail about Nazi connections because I don't think that would be a fitting tribute to the man. Um, and no. This week's a Prince Philip special, so we're not going to do a pick a Nazi thing. Maybe not rule it out for the future. No, but, maybe um, not. Maybe not. But certainly not on this episode. But anyway. No. He had a favourite sister called Cecile. Yes. And he would quite often go and visit her in Germany. Um, but sadly, um, when he was only 16 years old, her, uh, she and her husband and their two children were killed in a plane crash. Yeah. And uh, that really hit him hard apparently really absolutely hard. yeah oh, awful yeah terribly awful especially at that age so mm. 
I, I've got a lot of respect for him because, you know, we all know he could have chosen to fight for Germany. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, if sm- sm- one small little thing changed in his upbringing or where he resided or went to school or, you know, where he ch- chose to travel to, yeah, he could have been on the other side for sure, definitely. Yeah, and um, I, I think I think obviously he chose well, but, I mean, he wasn't to know that really. I think maybe... No. He decided that, you know, he as he was growing up in Britain, that it was the right thing to do to fight for the country that had given you shelter because he was a man with no country, really, you know, or a, a boy, boy with no country. A boy with no country, yeah. I do know that he actually met the king um, of England and the Commonwealth, <laughs> Uh, during his naval training as well, um, early on in his naval training. So that probably sort of swung it for him, really, if he hadn't made his mind up already. Um, And, you know, had met with the British royal family before. Um, So I think that was probably a part of it, definitely. Yeah, um, you know, so some would say that he had a good war. Um, Yeah, yeah. I I would say... Finishing on the on the winning side is a is a good war. Yeah, uh, I think he was quite lucky, um, especially with the sort of battles um, and naval engagements that he was sort of set up in, um, especially being against the Italian navy to start with. Um, obviously, the fighting was fierce, but it wasn't as fierce as sort of other areas uh, during the war. Um, uh, he served on quite a few ships um, during the war. Um, and one of the last ones that he was on, uh, which one is it? Yeah, HMS Royal Arthur, uh, which was the last one after the war, um, which was just like a little training ship, really. So he sort of quietened down by the end of the war. Uh, but before that, he was also at the uh, present for the Japanese surrender um, in Tokyo Bay, which I found very interesting. Uh, that's just fantastic. Um, I only heard about that the other day when I was listening to um, a podcast by Al Murray and James Holland called We Have Ways of Making You Talk. And Oh, yes. yeah. They they actually mentioned that. And I mean, God, what an honour to have been yeah. on that ship at that time. I, I don't think he was on that ship. Uh, by my account, I think he was on another ship and watching. Uh, <laughs> But just being that close to it, well, and, yes. know, that sort of ended the global conflict, That's essentially. Fa- still fantastic, let's be fair. It's amazing. Yeah. It's absolutely amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. But yeah, his naval career, very esteemed. Uh, quite a few campaign medals and mentioned in dispatches for his uh, sort of courageous work with the spotlights and others. Um on other ships as well. Um, he's also awarded the Greek War Cross uh, from Greece yeah. um, for the work that he did to sort of help start the liberation, so to speak, of uh, Greece and the Greek islands, um, which is great. It's really great. There was another little tragedy for him, though, because his father passed away in 1944. Yes. His mother had actually returned to Greece during the war um she sheltered jewish refugees actually that's right yeah i mean 
that's that's a hell of a risk she was taking. It really, really is. Yeah. Because not only Just, was it dangerous for her, but it was also dangerous for her daughters. Bear in mind, they were all married to Germans. You know, that's that's quite a serious risk she was taking there. Absolutely. You know, hiding, you know, Jews <laughs> yeah. to start with, but also, you know, being a member of a royal family um, in Europe yeah. and her son, you know, a, a naval officer against the occupying force that you're in the country that you're staying in. It must have been frightening. Yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Did you know, though, that he met the Queen when he was an 18-year-old cadet, right? That's 1940, and she was only 13. Yeah, um, so the King and the two princesses at the time uh, were basically down there sort of looking about, really. Uh, and he was the one tasked with escorting uh, the two princesses. Um, there was a, a bit of disease going on uh, at the time uh, in the Naval College, mumps and chickenpox, uh, mostly. Right. So they had to be kept away. Um, so he gave them a guided tour. Um, yeah, and that's where they first met. Fantastic. Uh, so he obviously made an impression on the 13-year-old uh, Elizabeth. I think so, yes. Now, her sister Margaret was a couple of years older, I think, wasn't she? Or was, was she younger? No, I think it's the other way. Yeah, younger. Been, yeah, oh, younger. okay. Right. Yeah. She was a bit of a rebel, wasn't she? <laughs> she really was, Good yeah. For her. Definitely. <laughs> Good for her indeed. But yeah, um, on their little tour as well, and this ties into sort of my meeting with him, um, they played croquet in the captain's garden. Uh, and that's where I met uh, Prince Philip, was in the captain's garden, really? but not, alas, not playing croquet. Yeah. <laughs> now, that's a sport I've never played, but it really appeals to me. I've had a little go. Uh, there's different variations and different rules. Um, depending on sort of the class of people that you're playing with, I suppose, and sort of the situation. Um, but yes, it wasn't my sort of thing. Um, I didn't really understand it. But yeah, it was quite quite interesting. I, I literally I don't know very much about it at all. But it, it's it's something that does sort of appeal to me. I think. Uh, yeah. Just you know, you're on a on a beautifully manicured lawn usually, and yes, you know. It's just I kind of like snooker with mallets, really, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. yeah. And it's sort of like lots of moves where you can, you know, smash an opponent's croquet ball out of the way and move the gates, you know, yeah. the bits that you stick in the ground yeah. with different rules and stuff. Uh, yeah. I like it. Just not my I thing. Like it. <laughs> I like this. I like the, uh, the sound of it. So, um, yeah. Philip has a great war. He hooks up with Elizabeth again, and yes. they announce her engagement in 1947. Yeah, so, you know, just two years after the war. Um, yeah. The thing is, they, I think they got married that year as well. Um, I think so. But not a single member of his family were invited to the wedding. No, which is quite sad, but I think quite understandable at the time, uh, sadly. Well, yeah. uh, apart from his mother, really, I would have thought that his mother would have been invited. Um, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. a bit of a strange one. I don't know. Well, I suppose you, you invite them all on none, I suppose. Oh, none at all. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I mean, bearing in mind, like, his 
surviving sisters were all, you know, married to Germans, it probably wouldn't have gone down very well. No, especially at that time in the United Kingdom, definitely not. Now, what, what I thought was really interesting was that they honeymooned in Malta, the yes. most bombed place on earth to this day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's incredible. Uh, I've got a sort of idea behind this, uh, kind of, and why they did holiday there. <laughs> so... Uh, Malta was a very, very big naval base at the time, during um, and after the war. And I think that they went there, or sort of Philip suggested it, so that he could get stationed there uh, after they were married, to sort of in, introduce um, the Queen, uh, so uh, Princess Elizabeth at the time, sort of, you know, trying to get to know the area before they moved. Right, okay. That's my sort of idea. Yeah, because they lived out there for uh, a while, really, well... Uh, Philip was stationed out there in the in the Navy. I didn't know. I didn't know that. Yeah, apparently um, Princess Elizabeth, um, no one sort of recognised her outside of you know his social circles, and she just used to you know wander down to the shops, to the market, and no one had a clue, oh, <laughs> which I found great. Oh, of course, I I bet she wishes sometimes it was still like that. Absolutely, I think that would have been probably the last time that that would have ever happened to her. Yeah. You know, going somewhere where she's not recognised. Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, do you know, I I don't suffer from that problem. Uh, me neither. The only people who ever recognise me are, are people who don't know me, and and they think they know me, and they don't. I see. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, God, honestly. Uh, well, as you know, um, I can I can be up on stage and play the first 45 minute set jump off stage nobody knows who i am no exactly uh, and i have proven this many a time um i i used to do with with that band that you and i used to play for um albeit at different times uh that whose name shall not be mentioned no it shall not i i used to um because i had radio gear for my guitar so I, I wasn't pinned to the amp by a lead uh, I could get off the stage and start a conga for um, uh, one of the songs we used to do and, and I used to time it, uh, it was it was Nini Nana Nunu, you know Yeah, I, that, that used to happen um, when I was with them but not not me, I wasn't leading the conga right. <laughs> Well it was, it was me leading the conga and and I'd go all the way around whatever venue we were in and time it so I'd get back to the front of the stage with this massive conga behind me just for the end of the song right now the one time we were doing a, a festival uh, up in in the gower and so I duly jumped off stage with a guitar led the conga of course I'm playing all the way around and this this woman's got fierce grip on my love handles right uh, to the point that I, I I thought she was actually trying to hurt me um, and went Christ. all the way around this massive sort of marquee and got back just in time for the end of the song and she turned to me and said so are you anything to do with the band <laughs> fucking hell love. she just watched me for 45 fucking minutes I've just led a conga around it whilst I'm still playing the guitar. Yeah. And you wonder if I'm anything to do with the band. So 
Yep. Uh, I I had it um, at a gig, uh, part of a tour with another band, and we had to do signings, you know, oh. and you know, give merch out. And I was standing there in front of uh, our band's section, and this one was like, "Oh, how long have you been queuing to, you know, get your get your stuff signed?" <laughs> and I'm wearing exactly what I was wearing on stage. Yeah, that's incredible. And it's just, yeah, in a way, I quite, I quite like it because you can sort of like melt away into the crowd, you know, maybe go to the bar and no one has a clue. Well, it's, it's the one reason why I stopped going to the bar, actually, because, you know, very often when you're with a band, I mean, the bar staff know you haven't got a lot of time before you've got to go back on stage. And, of course, they'll fit you in a couple of pints a bit quick uh, so that, you know, you jump in a queue, basically. Yeah, but because I'm so unrecognisable, it it just doesn't work for me. So um, <laughs> I, I basically uh, just started bringing my own supply of beer and keeping it in the in the band van, you know. Oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a really good. That's I've got to commend you I for that because I've had a few cans. Yes, you have. Yes, <laughs> I, th- I think the worst worst one for that was the Claude. The Claude is absolutely fucking terrible for queuing. Yeah, I just don't even... It's terrible for everything, yeah. um, sadly. Yeah. Uh, every time I've performed there, there has been a fight. Has there? Every single Crikey. time. Every single time. And the bouncers wouldn't let me back in to get my equipment or to go to the stage to play. I couldn't queue at the bar. The toilets, the queue, it's stupid. There's nowhere to sit. Yeah. I just really don't like that venue. No. I, I used to like it when it was my venue because I used to play there with another band on a regular basis and we we, we pretty much owned the place. You know, if, if we were yeah. playing there, that place was heaving, you know, and we could do no wrong. Absolutely. Yeah. But anyway, it's all changed. It has. Uh, it really has. So the Queen, bless her, didn't get to be anonymous anymore after that. No. Because of the royal wedding. Yeah. And the Prince Philip at the time had to renounce quite a few of his titles and so on uh, to sort of be accepted and, you know, to get married uh, into the British royal family, which couldn't have been very nice um, at the time for him, really. Well, I I don't know really what titles he renounced, but um, maybe... uh... He, He denounced all his princehoods. Um, to start with. Right. That's yeah. a bit odd, isn't it? Because um, he became the Duke of Edinburgh. But later on, like something like 10 years after that, he was made a prince again by the Queen. Yeah. Yeah. So I think to actually marry uh, at the time the heir to the throne and sort of not to interfere with the hierarchy of the British royal family, uh, I think that's why he had to denounce his... Uh, Princehoods. I think that's the right name. I'm not quite sure. Uh, but anyway, Princehoods. Yeah. Uh, and he was just given the title uh, Duke, um, some sort of British aristocratical uh, title of some sort. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, I mean, the other thing really was he had to give up that career. Yeah. That's got to be heartbreaking. Absolutely. Um, yeah, so <laughs> after his honeymoon, um, you know, he went straight back uh, to his regular sort of day job in the Navy, 
Uh, unfortunately, no sort of active service for him as such. Um, so he's stuck at the Admiralty uh, and then at the Naval Staff College um, in Greenwich, uh, which is probably the saddest part, really. You know, instead of, you know, out fighting and, you know, sailing around the world, you're stuck behind a desk, sadly. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's not um, the job for an action man, really, is it? It really isn't. Uh, and like I said, then they, he was stationed in Malta. Uh, and, you know, he got promoted a few times out there and became the first lieutenant of the destroyer HMS Checkers. Right. Um, so those ranks don't exist anymore. Uh, but there's third, second and first lieutenant, depending on your experience yeah. um, back then. And on the 30th of June, 1952, uh, he was promoted to the rank of commander. Um, unfortunately, though, um, it, that's where his career ended. Uh, it ended a little bit before that. Um, but commander is sort of a rank that you're entitled to. Um, when you retire, um, you normally obtain the rank higher um, as your title when you retire. Oh, sure. Which is nice. Yeah, I think that was sort of like a nice going away present um, from the Navy, really. I very highly regarded um, when I was there. There was quotes, um, his memoirs, his mentions in dispatches, quite a few portraits of himself, um, sort of all around the Naval College, which was really, really good. It was really, really nice. Yeah. So um, it strikes me that, you know, once uh, the Queen's father had died and, and she became the Queen, that Philip's life was... Well, it was just fucked, really, on it, you know. Absolutely, yeah. You know, he's the husband to the queen. You know, the second that the king had died, um, he wasn't sort of his own man anymore. Um, he was sort of the second uh, in the relationship. Um, he was just the queen's husband. Yeah. So, you know, going from you know this great naval commander to the queen's husband must have been a terrible shock to the system, uh, probably didn't really stand in very well. Uh, I wouldn't have liked it <laughs> at all. If, if I can kind of make a small analogy, yeah. Yeah. When I got married, um, my father-in-law was an ex-police inspector who stood at six foot six in height. Oh. And even though I'm relatively tall for a Welshman, um, yes, he absolutely towered over me, and he always used to say, "Oh, I'd love to have have you in my interview room for twenty minutes." <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, he was, you know, from the Gene Hunt era, so uh, I would imagine, yeah, uh, been um, bashed about a bit, but but um, definitely, he couldn't turn off the police thing. He could not fucking turn off the being an inspector and in charge of men and when mm. we went out to australia for three weeks and met up with him and his second wife he dominated everything he'd he'd written a schedule out of what we were going to do in that three weeks and it did not involve going to visit any of my family uh it didn't involve hiring a car to have a drive around and yeah. I I just felt horribly, horribly trapped. I felt like a prisoner, actually. And in the end, I had to say, um, "No, I'm not doing this." And and you know, I'll get on the next plane home if this carries on. 
Yeah. Here we are, Prince Philip. He's he's married into this family now, where he has to give up his career. His mother-in-law um, actually referred to him as the Hun, <laughs> which is not short for honey. As no, and uh, and she didn't think he was much of a gentleman either, you know. So no, I, I guess he kind of had. Uh, a bit of a bluntness about him that covered for any sort of, I don't know, insecurities or, or, or anything like that that he may have had himself or weaknesses of character, you know. He. Yeah. 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 But then again, you could argue that, you know, he's married to the most uh, powerful woman in the country and he can do what the fuck he likes, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I suppose he sort of had protection from a lot of things, um, you know, being the husband to the queen. But like you said, you know, with his the demise of his career and, you know, what his in-laws uh, sort of thought of him, uh, you know, it's not a very good balance anyway. But, yeah, he probably could do whatever he wanted. <laughs> now, um, I don't know if you've ever seen that series called The Crown, I have. Yeah, I liked it as a drama series. Uh, I thought it was quite good. I've watched one episode. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, hang on a minute. Yeah, I think it was the... Um, oh, um, the You know, the, we had the, uh, the disaster in, in Wales. I'm trying to think of the name of the place... Oh, uh, the the Aberfan. It should just trip off my tongue. I, I'm ashamed that it didn't. Um, in that episode, when the they they show a funeral cortege going up through, uh, they actually show it going up through um, Cumamon. Um, yes, yeah, they do. Yeah, they? and uh, and it goes right past uh, my sister's tea shop. Oh. Um, Oh, that's cool. Yeah, so they, they sort of dressed that up to look like uh, as it was back in the day. And in fact, she yeah. she didn't cover a lot of the original signage of when it was a draper's shop. So um, that was pretty oh, cool. That's pretty good. Yeah, I like that. But anyway, in The Crown, um, apparently they uh, alluded to the fact that Prince Philip enjoyed the company of other women women during his marriage to the Queen. Oh. Uh, yeah. And apparently um, when they had their 50th wedding anniversary, uh, he, he toasted the Queen and said, I think the main lesson we have learned is that tolerance is the one essential ingredient in any happy marriage. You can take it from me. The Queen has the quality of tolerance in abundance. Uh, wow. Yeah. So. Um, wow. I suppose that that's uh, sort of to do with the class system as well. Um, you know, going back through royals through the ages where they had their wives and their mistresses and so on. And it was sort of, you know, a given that that would happen. Yes, it's it's really strange though, isn't it? I, I I couldn't imagine being that person myself. No, no, I wouldn't think so. No, I I couldn't. 
but although uh, <laughs> one of the sort of funny ones um, to do with sort of naval tradition, um, so there's a toast for each day uh, when you have your tot of rum, and I it has changed now. Uh, I think it's uh, the Saturday uh, toast. It's to our families. Um, but prior to that, it was uh, to our wives and sweethearts. Um, and then everyone else replies, uh, may they never meet. Oh, I, you know, <laughs> I didn't know that. That's pretty, that's brilliant, that is, really. Yeah. Um, but we used to say it, but I think it had officially changed uh, to uh, our families instead. Um, and I think that the other one, Tuesday, uh, to our men, uh, I think that's changed to our sailors now. Uh, but that's fair enough. Oh, right. Okay. Well, you know, yeah, uh, it's it's good to hear these traditions, really, because I think most people just don't know them. No, I I don't think they do. Um, you know, we used to do it every day, <laughs> all the toasts. We always had our uh, tot of rum uh, every day, uh, and then followed by quite a few pints. <laughs> so, uh, would you? When would you have the tot of rum in the morning, or? Uh, it depends. Uh, it depends on what watch you're on, really. So what time you're on duty and yeah. such. Uh, you're not supposed to drink on duty. Um, <laughs> but normally uh, we'd have it at dinner time uh, in the mess. Um, the toast is normally sort of guided and given by the youngest officer present. Yeah. Um, so when I first started, it was me right. uh, <laughs> giving those. Um, yeah, which is pretty good. Um, so normally there's a toast first, uh, which is called the loyal uh, toast, uh, which is quite good. It's just all to do, um, you know, to the Queen, really. Yeah. <laughs> God save the Queen. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. So I think, looking at it, you know, at, right at the end of uh, his career, um, even though he wasn't formally in the Navy, but he did hang about a bit. Uh, he was probably giving those loyal toasts uh, to his wife, <laughs> I suppose. Probably, yeah. 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 <laughs> That's weird to think about. <laughs> All right, so um, I suppose you can't really talk about Prince Philip without talking about some of the conspiracy theories. Uh, no, you definitely can't. I mean, first of all, um, it's been suggested by a certain David Icke that uh, the royal family are lizard people. I've heard of this one, yeah. yeah. And uh, especially the Queen. Um, oh, okay. Now, you know, of course, they talk about them being shapeshifters. So when we see them, they shape uh, shift their shape into that of a human. And uh, right. apparently they regularly sacrifice children and drink their blood and stuff like that. Um, oh. But I, I haven't seen anybody suggest that Prince Philip is a lizard, only that the Queen is and some of the other royals. Oh. So That's surprising. You know, could it be that he went on his jollies uh, with other women, for example, because um, he didn't particularly like shagging a lizard <laughs> possibly possibly now i've got to say that it would be pretty easy to debunk the lizard people theory 
because yeah. if you know anything about lizards, they just don't do a fucking thing until they've heated up in the sun. Absolutely, that's very true. And we don't get a lot of that here. So No. So um, I, I would imagine that uh, it's a load of bollocks, but, you know. Yeah, I'm not... I'm far from 100% on that conspiracy. Yeah. I, I mean, I, we, I think we, we need to talk about these things at some stage on the show because uh, yeah, I, I'm definitely interested in the whole sort of UFO alien thing. And, uh, you know, I'm, Absolutely. I, I, yeah. I'm not saying I'm buying into it, but I'm definitely interested in it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of conspiracy theories are interesting. Uh even if you're not a follower of them or believe a word of it, uh, but they are interesting sort of to look at, definitely. Well, another side of this, of course, is that Prince Philip was actually heavily into the UFO thing, and hmm. when, um, <clears throat> pardon me, when uh, Rendlesham happened, he uh, was um, so interested in that that he actually. Um, had a, a meeting about it because he oh. he wanted to know if it was true. And there are some um, suggestions that he'd seen the UFO himself several times. Oh, right. So, uh, yeah, apparently uh, that was sort of in the 70s, you know, he was really yeah. kind of big on that. I heard that he had, he had quite a big interest in sort of space and space exploration as well, uh, which is great. Uh, I know he met uh, Neil Armstrong. Uh, Buzz Aldrin, and the other one. Oh, <laughs> Sadly, yeah. um, that's what I will say. <laughs> I can't remember his name. Oh, I I can't remember his name either. Uh, I don't think many people can. Oh, that's sadly that's bad, isn't it? It is bad. It really is bad. I it really is bad. I th- I think we we do need to talk about um, the moon landings at some stage. Yeah. Yeah. That'd be really interesting. Yeah. I, I being uh, a little bit older than yourself, yes. as, as I'm a pre-millennial, um, <clears throat> I've, I've got to say that um, I remember watching the moon landing. Uh, I was just a f- three years old or something like that, and I can remember my father saying to me, um, just going to land a man on the moon and it's on the television. Let's go and watch it. And we had a black and white TV in uh, Canada. And I I can remember sitting there and watching it, you know, uh, as, as if it was yesterday, you know, I, Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And that's so cool. Yeah. uh, But I'm not entirely convinced by it. So we'll, we'll talk about that sometime. Uh, Michael Collins uh, was the third astronaut. Michael Collins, right? Michael Collins. <laughs> there we go. Just to give him the the credit that he is due. Yeah, <laughs> Ab- being abs- a member of yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, he he should be just as legendary for being the guy that you know took one for the team, if you like. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. When he was controlling things and doing stuff from inside the capsule, he wasn't out on a jolly on the moon. No, but <laughs> but he, you know, to to go there and not land on the moon 
whilst you know that the other two are going to get all the fame and glory. Yeah, it's yeah, absolutely. So, another little conspiracy about Prince Philip was that he ordered the murder of Diana, Princess of Wales. Yes. Now, I don't know whether to believe any of that or not. Um, No. Because, you know, apparently he had a bit of an on-off relationship with Diana in the sense that... um, you know, sometimes they were thick as thieves and really, really got on well, and other times they didn't. But I would imagine that she was actually quite difficult, um, you know, and, and certainly if if you're out of the royal family, as she became, um, she's going on the TV talking about affairs that she's had, Um yeah. And the affairs that Charles had had. That's not really the way to go about things with the royal family. Oh, definitely not, no. So, you know, you you could argue that she had to be silenced. Um, yeah. And uh, then you get the conspiracies that, you know, uh, Charles had said certain things and Diana predicted that he was going to have her killed in a car crash with a head injury and all this sort of thing. Uh, There are rumours that uh, her bodyguard was part of MI6 and he he was the only one in that car crash who was wearing a seatbelt. Yeah, that's right. Um, So, you know, rumours abound. But why... Prince Philip would order her murder. If it is a murder, I don't know, really. No, I don't know. Um, obviously, it's one of the, the biggest conspiracies sort of regarding the royal family and Prince Philip, you know, specifically. Um, I don't know what sort of weight he would have to pull that off uh, or if you'd be interested in it. Uh, I don't know. I really don't. The only thing is that apparently this whole thing was cooked up between him and MI6 and Tony Blair. Hmm. And we all know that certain people um, within uh, the the era of the Blair government and the uh, Iraq war were, or the second Iraq war, I think it was, they, certain people did die and in mysterious circumstances. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, that is that is well known and sort of factual, definitely. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah. So there is a possibility of that being true, you know, and of course yeah. we'll never know about it. No, I mean, obviously the government is very capable um, of assassinating people. Uh, they've done it since... Uh, Sort of governments were sort of invented, um, and it goes on to this day, um, definitely. Um, but to that sort of extent, and in those circumstances, I don't know. No, and my main thing with this is why would why would it be Prince Philip that uh, you know wants this done? Uh, I, yeah. I, I would have thought it would have been more likely uh, 
the Queen gives the order. Yeah, you'd think so, her being head of state and it, it, her government. Um, yeah, you definitely think so. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know. I wouldn't put it past Tony Blair, though. Absolutely not. Oh, absolutely not. No. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> no, um, I haven't got the best relationship uh, with Mr. Blair <laughs> at all. No. Uh, for numerous reasons. I, well, <laughs> I, I was a, a supporter back in the day. Okay. Uh, yeah. But, you know, as things come to light, as they often do years later, you you start to think, hang on a minute, I'm not sure I should have given this guy my support. Um, no. He's got a bit of a dodgy track record, even before he was um, prime minister. Yes, absolutely. You know, and and absolutely. since becoming prime minister, yeah, I mean, who would have thought that he could have become Middle Eastern peace envoy in a place where he sanctioned, you know, the essentially the murder of hundreds of thousands of Iraqi civilians. Yes, absolutely. It's just beyond me. No, it, re it really is. Um, so, um, well, when I was serving... Um, sort of following on from uh, his invasions of certain countries um, that got me sent to places that I really didn't want to be in, uh, just, you know, from his initial invasions um, at the time, which was horrible. Well, this actually brings us back to what you were saying earlier on about um, uh, naval personnel sometimes being land-based. Yes. Um, most of my... Um, tours were on land uh i only had one well one slash two technical tours you know at sea uh being at sea um but i was um stationed and sent on active service uh, to afghanistan so I, I i may be wrong um you know i'm not an expert on geography but i i thought afghanistan was almost certainly <laughs> landlocked <laughs> yes you'd think so wouldn't you yeah. So why would there be a need for the Royal Navy out there? Uh, and there's only two, well, three reasons um, that the Navy was sent to Afghanistan, technically. Number one was intelligence, uh, British naval intelligence. Uh, number two was diffusing bombs. Um, so uh, naval divers um, who uh, dismantle bombs, um, they were needed out there a lot. And thirdly was to look after and stop the Royal Marines getting into trouble. <laughs> right. So, so what was your role with that then? Uh, liaison. Um, so, in the camp, uh, which I won't name, uh, it was tri forces for the British forces. So, Army, Navy, Marines, Air Force, and some other sort of allied um, or ISAF uh, was, was the term. Uh, so, we had Dutch soldiers, German soldiers, American. Um, I was just a liaison, really, as an officer between enlisted service members, such as those naval divers and Royal Marines and other departments, such as the Royal Air Force and other wings of the British Army as well. Um, that was the main point, really. Liaison, uh, basically desk work in the desert, uh, as we called it. Right. So, so yeah. am I right in thinking that Afghanistan is landlocked? Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. So, I mean, you didn't sail sail so. in there on the ship. You 
Oh, no. No, no, we were flown in. Yeah. Um, a C-130, a transporter plane, same as everyone else. Yeah, <laughs> Are you... yeah on, on the plane I was in, um, I think there was four actual Royal Naval uh, officers, uh, a lot of enlisted, say, I say enlisted, uh, not enlisted as in forced to enlist, uh, but other ranks, uh, mainly British Army. Right. So... And an RAF pilot. <laughs> so were you uh, tooled up on this mission? Yeah, um, yeah, always um, armed to a certain extent. Uh, I went out on patrol um, a fit handful of times um, for the experience uh, and just for sort of intelligence gathering uh, mainly, uh, which was a phenomenal experience, um, which I took a lot away from, really. Yeah. But yeah, um, on camp, um, you've got um, weapons to hand, um, most of most of the time, really, unless you're having a shit shower or shave, and then you just you know sling your rifle up <laughs> as close to you as possible. Yeah. Um, I was issued a sidearm as well, yeah. uh, which was on my leg uh, constantly, right, yeah. just in case. Yeah. So, um, I I haven't had much experience of the officers' mess other than uh, peeling lots of spuds for their <laughs> dinners. But in a, in a no. sergeant's mess uh, um, that I, I've been in, you know, we used to have a, a fry up every morning. Um, did did you have bacon and eggs even in Afghanistan? Yes. Um, so our mess was tri service, so RAF, Army, and Navy, um, and we had what are called stewards. Um, I don't know what the term is in the army or if they still use that term. Um, but, you know, um, sort of other ranks who are cooks and they cook your food separately and, you know, provide you with whatever you need um, for your free meals a day. Well, in most circumstances, <laughs> a lot of the time uh, we work in uh, quite a lot. Um, so we just eat snacks for lunch mostly. Yeah. But yeah, we had our breakfasts and sort of evening meals uh depending on what sort of duty roster you're on but the key key thing um, I'm, I'm talking about there is you know you're in a muslim country uh but if you still had bacon and eggs uh oh yeah yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. um when we're out, outside the walls or outside the wire uh it's very important and what i think is personally morally important you know to follow you know local customs um as best you can um, and it makes you sort of and you know a friend of the people um but inside the wire and inside the wall really it's a, a british military establishment um and you can't take bacon and eggs off uh, no. your normal soldier sailor or airman or a woman Quite right well. Quite right too yeah <laughs> so anyway um all right did you did you have any uh, i don't know how long you were there for and uh, but did you um i was out there um Technically, two to, uh, two tours, uh, numerous months each. Uh, wasn't the best um, sort of lifestyle out there. Uh, I learned a lot out there, um, personally, morally, uh, physically as well. Um, but it wasn't sort of the highlight of my career, and I sort of come away with it feeling uh, quite depressed and with it being sort of like the worst. Yes. Um, sort of experience of my life, sadly. I can imagine. Um, but I, I did enjoy some parts of it. Yeah. Um, but it was horrible. Not the country, not the people who lived there, but just the situation that we were all in there yeah. um, was absolutely terrible. 
and just shouldn't, in my personal opinion, not the um, opinion or fact from the Royal Navy or any British establishment, but we shouldn't have been there in the first place. No, and I, I know you did have uh, at least one hairy experience there, didn't you? Yes. Um, so the main sort of thing against you out there uh, is ambush or IEDs, improvised explosive devices, um, which were um, dismantled by those Royal Navy uh, sailors that I mentioned earlier, yeah. and they did a phenomenal phenomenal job um but yeah we were shot at um obviously i only went out on a handful of patrols for the experience um but i saw uh, numerous injuries and fatalities um and one or two firefights as well out there um and it was just horrific uh when you come away from it do, do you find that when you've been in some kind of action like that that it changes you forever yes um during my initial training um we were taught the morality of killing and the morality of life which wasn't taught uh, years and years before but with the conflicts that were going on at the time mainly iraq afghanistan and a little bit into syria and other sort of uh, funny places um it really does weigh on you um you know what you what you are capable of, what could happen to you, or what you could inflict on another person. Yeah, yeah. I um... and you've got to you've got to balance that out. Um, you're at war, um, but the morality of war isn't defined in sort of modern conflicts um, like the war on terror um, in Afghanistan. Um, it's very different to any other war. Um, that's happened in the 20th century. I do feel like uh, forces out there were fighting with one hand tied behind their backs. Yeah, uh, for numerous reasons. Um, but you're in someone else's country. You're not wanted there. Uh, you've been placed there to sort of, in, you know, in air quotes or inverted commas, to help stabilise a country that you have no need to be stabilising. Um, obviously, it wasn't a very nice country or the regime as it was before the British forces went in there. Um, same as Iraq, but it, it was stable to a certain extent, same as Libya and a lot of other places. Yeah. And the damage done to the local population and the country itself and the regimes, it's just unforgivable. Unforgivable is the right word. So probably the only experience uh, I've had that would have any kind of similarity was when I got held up in an armed robbery. All right. Now it, it reminded me in a way of, of what it must be like to go into action because I mean, there were guns fired. Uh, yes. I was obviously unarmed. It was very close confined space because uh, uh, we will talk about that one day. Um, yeah. I'm lucky to be alive. And one of my crewmates just totally cracked up. It was the second time he'd been robbed. And, uh, and he, he quit the next day. Wow. The other one in the crew appeared to be a massive bag of nerves. And he probably was because he set up the robbery. Oh. 
right? Oh, wow. And I was calm as fuck. And I can't explain to you why. If if you'd said to me, um, how do you think you would be in that situation? I would have predicted myself to be shaking like a leaf and yeah. doing a lot of liquid shitting, right? Um, yeah. I was in a position where I could not escape from it. Um, no. I was actually also in a position where I could have killed the guy with the gun before he got to use it, and I oh. nearly did it, right? So, ironically, I was chief suspect for this robbery oh. because I was the only one that was calm as fuck. Oh, I see. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, it, it doesn't make sense, but it does make yeah. sense. Yeah. <laughs> but I think the reason oh, why I was calm as fuck was because it had got out of hand and it hadn't meant to get out of hand and it calmed down quite quickly and I was just thinking I'm going to live through this and yeah, it changed, it changed me for life. You know, I, I, I'm now, an, Absolutely. I'm now one of those people who, you know, when there's, some ridiculous situation going on or or perhaps I'm being threatened by somebody. I I just think, fucking hell, if you've been through what I've been through, you'd realise how fucking stupid you're behaving and and how little I care, yeah. you know? Yeah, absolutely. And, and how little uh-huh. I'm bothered by it. And uh, yeah. so when I this brings me back to Prince Philip because I would imagine that having seen the action that he did see, especially when they just like obliterated the Italian uh, forces, that he wasn't that bothered anymore, you know? No, I really don't think he was. Um, I mean, he's, you know, been there, done that, done that, got the medals. Uh, yeah. You know, he's been through a hell of a lot. Um, but like you said, uh, you know, being in a situation like that must definitely changed him uh it changed me uh it's changed you yeah um and it definitely must have changed him especially during that war that atrocious war uh, definitely a lot of people would say that um he was quite blunt and rude and short-tempered uh yeah and and i would say i can see why you know absolutely he didn't have a very good start to life um, you know, his prime years were spent in a war fighting for a country. Yeah. And then and yeah. then you end up traipsing around after the Queen through thousands of engagements that you'd really rather not be at. Uh yeah. You know, uh at any moment you could be assassinated. Yeah. <laughs> That's very true. Uh yeah. And and you know what he retired two years ago, didn't he? Right, so he's like ninety seven yeah. when he retired from public duties. I, I would have just like, oh, you know, can you imagine at ninety seven you're still traipsing around the same frigging things, <laughs> trying to be nice to people? And, oh, God alive, you know. And he was of a generation yeah. as well where I think. Casual racism was, it was just a thing, you know? Yeah, well, you know, he grew up during that time, really. 
uh, where it was like you know socially acceptable uh, back then. Yeah. Um. You know, going through um sort of his gaps as they call them. Uh, he sort of took that through his whole life, really. Yeah. Without really giving a shit. Yeah. I mean, I mean, <laughs> some people say, oh, he didn't have any. He didn't have a filter. I mean, why would he need a filter? I mean, this this guy. What are you going to do about it? You know. Yeah, there's nothing anyone can do about no. it. Uh, he's not going to be forced to apologise for anything, is he? No, exactly. Ever. So um, I thought I'd mention some of his most famous um, and memorable lines. So um, he was. Oh, this will be good. He was uh, um, on a visit in 1961 to the uh, Scottish Women's Institute, uh, where he said. British woman can't women can't cook. <laughs> so, oh, Christ. <laughs> uh, and and then uh, you know he was he was uh, in Ethiopia, nineteen sixty five. Oh no! And they were showing him some African art, and he said it looks like the kind of thing my daughter would bring back from a school art lessons. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, he. Um, he was asked if he'd like to go to Russia, and he said, "Oh, oh, I'd like to go to Russia very much. Although the bastards murdered half my family." <laughs> so, and, and that's factually, factually true. It, it is. It is. <laughs> well, and, and half of his wife's family, you know. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I mean, yes. Yeah. We mustn't forget, really, that you know that conflict and the First World War was pretty gruesome really for the royal family too absolutely it must have been ingrained in their upbringing as well yeah. you know talking about family members you know from past generations yep yeah <laughs> I, I can't blame him for saying that no do, do you know do you want to know what he said to our most famous welsh singer of all time tom jones yes please he said to tom jones he said what do you gargle with pebbles <laughs> Yeah, he, oh, that's he said that's uh, it's difficult to see how it's possible to become immensely valuable by singing what are the most hideous songs oh yeah that's not fair no. in some circumstances it is i, I i'm a big fan of Tom. different generation though. <laughs> that's funny it's different generation yeah though. exactly i can remember my yeah. father stomping into my bedroom when i was uh playing some uh records and he said, "What the bloody hell is this?" And and I was playing uh, Madness, right? And oh. So I said, "Oh, it's Madness." He said, "Bloody right, it's Madness. Turn that shit off." <laughs> and oh, I love that. And you know when um, Madness played on on the roof of Buckingham Palace, right? Oh yeah. He said the same thing, the same <laughs> thing. God, thirty odd years later, right? Like I said, I bet Prince Philip was saying the same thing as well. Probably. <laughs> they, they, it's a generational thing, isn't it, where they, they don't get the next oh, generation's is. music. Yeah. No, no. I think that'll continue on for the rest of time. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so, um, uh, well, anyway, uh, yeah, when he went to Canada, 1976, he said, uh, he said to the journalists that were, you know, there, he said, we don't come here for our health. We can think of other ways of enjoying ourselves. <laughs> um, 
No. Jesus. <laughs> 1984. He's in Kenya, and this oh no woman presents him with a small gift, and he says to her, "You are a woman, aren't you?" So. Oh. Yeah. Obviously. Yeah. No filter. But I love it. See, I, no. I'd, I'd forgive him for all of this. You know. I mean, he was. I. I would. Yeah. I would too. Yeah. <laughs> When he was in uh, Xi'an, nineteen eighty-six, when he was asked, uh, well, he um, he was talking to some British exchange students, and uh, he said, "If you live here much longer, you'll be slitty-eyed." Uh, Jesus! So, <laughs> somebody asked him what his opinion of Beijing was, and he said, "Ghastly." <laughs> He's not wrong. Yeah. He's not wrong about uh... <laughs> yeah. About that. Well, when he um, addressed a World Wildlife Fund meeting in 1986, he said, and, and I think this might be prophetic, actually. This is my, my mini COVID link this week. Right. He said, if it has four legs and it's not a chair, if it has two wings and flies, but it's not an airplane, and if it swims and it's not a submarine, the Cantonese will eat it. Oh, uh, must have been around a wet, wet he, market or something. Yeah, he did do a lot of uh, work with uh, the WWF. Um, just to add on to that, uh, he's a very keen conservationist. Well, um, yeah, and then he goes out shooting grouse. So. Yeah, yeah, he's a very fam- world-famous shooter and gun collector as well. <laughs> See, I, I personally think that he would have fitted in well with Australians in Australia, because as I mentioned earlier on, I have been there and and I was just completely confused by Australians. They're totally into their conservation and, you know, you you mustn't sort of kill any of the wildlife. Um, And, you know, they're well into this sort of stuff. And yet they all drive around in V8 Holdens and Fords and, Don't, uh, big four by fours don't give a shit about polluting the atmosphere, you know. But uh, don't, don't no. step in on that deadly spider. <laughs> so, uh, anyway, uh, next one he says, um, uh, no, I, I sh- he says, I don't think a prostitute is more moral than a wife, but they are doing the same thing. <laughs> and he said that when dismissing claims uh, that those who slaughter for meat have greater moral authority than those who partake in blood sports. So, oh, now that's, that's uh, an interesting one, isn't it? You know, I, yeah, I, it is. I don't like fox hunting. No, but I understand that they do need to be controlled um, yeah, I just don't yeah. agree with having them hunted down and torn apart. So no, um, I'm sort of similar thing. Um, I partook uh, or partaken in fox hunting, but sort of the the next generation sort of part where a false trail is made and you don't actually catch a fox. Um, that was on a Boxing Day hunt. I could, I could get behind basically a ride out. I could get behind that. I mean, the horses and the hounds—it's it's a spectacle and it's exhilarating. Um, it's just the end result 
I don't agree with. I mean, no, you know, it's it's no different really from having a greyhound race where you have a real rabbit instead of a fake rabbit going around the circuit. You know, <laughs> very true. If you, very if you true. can have a fake rabbit and still have the same amount of excitement, then you can do that with a hunt. I think. Absolutely, fox hunting isn't about the fox. Yeah. Uh, in any way, really, you know, it's a social get together. Yeah, that's all it is. That's all it is. Well, when he was in Australia, mind you, he he oh, here we go. He was asked if he wanted to pet a koala, and he went, "Oh no, I might catch some ghastly disease." <laughs> that's true. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I, I've seen a koala close up and personal, and and God, oh, jeez, they just sleep all the time, you know. Yeah. Anyway, um, oh. uh, he he went to Budapest in 1993, and he turned to a British tourist and said, "Well, you can't have been here that long. You haven't got a pot belly." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, now, when he went to the Cayman Islands, he said to one of the locals, uh, he said, aren't most of you descended from pirates? Oh. Well, I mean, that could be a genuine question. You know, I mean... It could be, yeah. Probably have the same effect as asking Australians if they're all defended, uh, descended from uh, criminals. Yeah. Particularly <laughs> like that line of questioning. Uh, no, no, they don't. He, uh, he asked a Scottish driving instructor once, uh, how do you keep the natives off the booze long enough to pass the test? <laughs> oh, I like that one. I, I like that it's one. just humour. It's yeah. humour, you know. And it's, it's not, it is. You know, that wouldn't sort of uh, bother me at all. I'd laugh, you know. No, I no, it wouldn't bother me either. Yeah. <laughs> I quite like that one. Well, when he was um, asked about stress counselling for soldiers in 1995, he said, it was part of the fortune of war. We didn't have counsellors rushing around every time somebody let off a gun, asking, uh, are you all right? Are you sure you don't have a ghastly problem? He said, you just got on with it. <sighs> and I kind of sympathise with that, really, you know. Yeah, uh, I'm a bit torn on that one. Um, well, I can see a place for having support, right? Yes, yes. I, I do understand that. I'm not one of these people that denies there's such a thing as shell shock or PTSD. Of course no. it is, you know. No. Um, yeah. And, you know, I'm all for that. But, I mean, I think he was referring to, you know, how people are becoming more and more uh, sort of snowflakeish, really, you know. Yeah, I, I can understand that one, uh, especially with gunshots. Uh, so the first time I ever fired um, a firearm uh, without ear protection yeah. uh, was uh, during a firefight, and it frightened the shit out of me. It was so loud. Right, <laughs> that's interesting you say that because you know I was saying that the the army taught me how to kill people at the age of thirteen, and my yeah. first experience with live ammunition was on an indoor range. Um, and I had oh. uh, somebody either side of me. I think there was three at a time or four at a time firing. And we had the old Lee Enfield 303 bolt action. Oh, nice. B big heavy <laughs> weapon. Actually, yeah. no, I tell a lie. Um, 
it was the Enfield, but these particular ones were converted to a two-two caliber for for it. Oh, I know the ones. They they called the number eight rifle. That's right, number eight training rifle. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Now we had a, a block of wood with, um, I think, I mean, it's a long time ago, six rounds. Um, oh. So you you put the rounds in one at a time. You know, we weren't firing from a magazine, and um, I wasn't. I wasn't prepared for the noise or for all the lights being turned out, right? Because the only thing that was illuminated was the target. Yeah. So um, as soon as the lights went out, I mean, I haven't got the greatest of night vision anyway. Um, you know, you, the guns on either side of me started firing, you know, the rifles. Um, yeah. By the time the lights went back on, I was a single round uh, because I couldn't see. I pulled the bolt back, but I was trying to push this first round in through through the battle site because I couldn't, couldn't oh, see what shit. I was doing. Um, so that was my first attempt at uh, indoor an indoor range, my first time firing a rifle. And, and yeah. I fucking shot myself. Bag of nerves. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But <laughs> within six months... I was the sharpest shooter in that unit. That was very good. Yeah. Uh, and to this day, I could probably do it. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I, I, I studied it really, really hard, you know, and your breathing control and everything. And I learned, I yeah. learned those weapons, you know. Uh, I learned them, every characteristic of them and, and whether they would, you know, tend to... to fire off slightly uh, with the wind conditions etc yeah yeah oh so, absolutely yeah. yeah i did absolutely i mean crap. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well i mean in my training uh we heard gunshots normally um but you know from a distance yeah um but any firing um if you're on exercise or uh you're firing live at a range um you had you know always had hearing protection uh and you had some sort of hearing protection sort of um, in Afghanistan and wave your helmet and padding and sort of uh, communication devices yeah. um, but with the, the actual firearm going off right next to you in that situation it is frightening, frighteningly loud Well, um, you know you back in my day we didn't wear helmets, we had a beret right? <laughs> yes. No hearing protection and uh, no. you know they say you if you hear a bullet that's the one that missed you, right? Yeah. And I was down in uh, Ross on Wye once, and we were uh, firing Sterling submachine guns, actually, from a, a ridiculous distance for Sterling. I mean, you should be like close up and personal, right? We were yeah. firing these in, at nine millimeter, aren't they? Right? Firing from like a good hundred yards from the, the, the targets in the butts. Oh, wow. <laughs> and when it was my turn to go down in the butts, uh, paste up the targets, um, by this time we'd been, we traveled quite a long time to get there in the back of an army lorry. And uh, bloody, a couple of us were absolutely d busting for a piss. And uh, we're like, well, where, where's the toilets around here? You know, somebody said, oh, it's just, it just climb up the bank and over to, over to the right. So, um, you know, we waited for the, the firing to stop and we as we climbed up the bank it started again. 
whistling past us. Fucking hell. Yeah. That's frightening. Yeah. That is frightening. I, I did have a piss there and then. Oh, there yeah. and then. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, close, close escape. Anyway. Absolutely. So let's get back to Philip and his, uh, and his gaffes, you know. Yeah. He, um, he once said to, uh, to a British student who'd been tracking in Papua New Guinea, uh, he said, oh, he managed not to get eaten then. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then uh, 1999, he's in, uh, in the US and uh, he was given a basket of Southern goods uh, from the US ambassador. Actually, this was in London. Uh, and he, first thing he says is, where's the Southern comfort? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, that's good. That's good. Uh, I wonder if they actually do anything with the gifts that they receive. I, I would imagine, I, I've, I think I've been told that they very often pass a lot of them down through the various staff that they have, you know. Oh, okay. Yeah. Quite a, that makes quite a sense. Perk, really, isn't it? <laughs> yes, I suppose it is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Unless it's something that they really, really want, like a bottle of Southern Gumper. Yeah. <laughs> He um he he saw some uh, uh, deaf kids right who were nearby a, a Caribbean steel drum band right. And oh, said, no, um, no 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 deaf. He said, "If you're near there, no wonder you're deaf." <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. Yeah. Um. Oh. Another another kid. He um he was talking to this kid. A thirteen-year-old kid called Andrew Adams, uh, who had said that he wanted to become an astronaut. Uh, this was during a visit at the Science Museum, right. and he sort of prodded him and said, "You could do with losing a bit of weight." Oh no! Uh, that ties into um, so. I mean, he had a brief conversation. Um, oh, you can't spill that one yet. No, but it sort of goes along along the lines of that. <laughs> well, you know, another time when he went to Australia, um, he asked uh, some Aboriginal Australians, uh, "Do you still chuck spears at each other?" Oh, God. And then, then he um, he went to a, a youth club in Bangladesh, two thousand and two, and he said to a a fourteen year old lad that was there he said uh, so who's on drugs here and they pointed at somebody he goes he looks like he's on drugs <laughs> yeah that's, that's funny uh, yeah that's one of the ones that I like <laughs> when, he, when he met uh, the president of Nigeria in 2003 who was dressed in traditional robes he said to him you look like you're ready for bed oh, no. yeah uh, he now this this would uh, would ring a bell with you. I think he he, he uh, met a, a female sea cadet who. Oh no, I know this he, one. Well, he told yeah. the prince that she worked in a nightclub, right? And he went, "Is it a strip club?" <laughs> oh yeah. Right. He um he asked Annabel Goldie, the Scottish Conservative leader when welcoming Benedict XVI to Edinburgh in 2010, he said, oh, that's a nice tie. Do you have any knickers in that material? Oh, shit. 
Yeah. And uh, oh. when he, he went to uh, Luton and Dunstable Hospital in 2013 and he oh. said to the nurses, he said, the Philippines must be half empty. You're all here running the NHS. <laughs> uh, well, that's, that's a good... You know, the NHS is propped up by uh, immigration. That's true, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's true, and they do they do a marvelous job. <laughs> but he he could also be a bit short tempered with people, and and this was coming back to what I was saying earlier on. You know, I mean, he he could sometimes would just say to people, just fucking get on and do the job. You know, just yeah, stop wasting my time, crack on. You know, and and yeah. he did exactly that at a Battle of Britain event in 2015 when he, he said to a photographer, he said, just take the fucking picture. Yeah, he's done that quite a few times to photographers, I think. Yeah. <laughs> so but now is the time to tell us what he said to you. Right. So we'd all passed out. We were actual uh, Royal Naval officers, um, commissioned, uh, Queen's Commission, um, all happy as Larry, uh, having drinks and an entourage of sort of higher level um naval officers sort of hurry past um and just mention um that he's on his way um just to have a word with us um so we didn't think we'd actually get the experience of talking you know directly to him yeah um so it was informal and they said just to you know keep it informal but you know have your wits about you because uh, it is a party like a sort of garden party type yeah. thing um so he's he's one coming through um talking to the officers, uh, the higher officers, admirals, vice-admirals, and such. Um, and occasionally then, you know, popping into, we're, we're sort of in a line, but sort of like around a little bit because we're still chatting and such. And he's going through us one by one and, you know, talking to each uh, new uh, naval officer uh, quite directly, shaking hands, you know, wishing them luck. Um, a few laughs are coming as well from himself, um, his entourage, and the actual uh, newly uh, commissioned naval officers. Um, and he comes up to me and says, oh, what's your name then? And I'm like, Philip Sue. Um, oh, good name. Fair enough. Uh, <laughs> he starts pointing a little bit and says, oh, uh, you're a bit, uh, a bit of a bloater, aren't you? <laughs> So I put on a little bit of weight, um, sadly, uh, during the time, and he called me a bit of a bloater. Um, then he asked me where I was from, and I said, South Wales, sir. He said, oh, South Wales. Uh, you, you lot used to be uh, good stookers back in the day, born with coal dust on the lungs. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, he's right. Uh, yeah, he is right, yeah. Um, but I took it in sort of good, <laughs> good jest. Um, shook his hand. Uh, he wished me well and good luck in the future, um, and just carried on uh, down the line. Um, uh, it was quite an experience. Uh, it was really uh, actually quite a big experience. Yeah, I'd, I'd say you're quite honoured, really. I mean, even though he did sort of like oh, insult you a little bit there. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I think he tried to insult um, everyone um, who he was going to speak to, really. Yeah. Um, but it put us all sort of at ease as well. Um, at the end of the day, he is a—he was a prince. Uh, he was the Duke of Edinburgh. But at the end of the day, he was, you know, a Royal Naval Officer, one of us. Yeah. Um, at that moment in time, I believe 
and I think he believed that you know we were one and all of the same, um, which I quite like thinking about. Yeah, but the other thing is, yeah, I really do. Uh, you know, he was quite famous for not shaking people's hands, but he shook your hand. So, yes, yeah. he shook every single newly commissioned Royal Naval officer on that day, yeah. which I found fantastic. Yeah, because uh, you see him, you know, when he was wandering around with the queen and people would put their hands out to shake uh, and, you know, he'd step back a little bit. Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, you know, he was in his uh, full ceremonial uniform. Um, we were in our best uniform. Uh, we all had swords with us. Wow. <laughs> he also had a sword. Yeah. Um, so God knows what would have happened if we all had a few too many drinks. Yeah. Um, but he, I obviously I didn't know him personally and I can only really, you know, go from, you know, records and, you know, seeing him in the press and the media, but he, he seemed relaxed. Yeah. And he seemed happy to be there. Um, which, you know, looking at, you know, other visits, like you said, that Luton hospital and things. Uh, <laughs> I, I think he did really enjoy being there on that day I, I think, uh, and anything naval. Yeah. I think that was his thing, wasn't it? And, and I'm guessing he didn't have the queen with him. No, so he could be himself, really, you know, because I mean, yeah. you could tick him off now and again for saying things or doing things that uh, he shouldn't. Absolutely, um, and in our um, out of all the officers that passed out, there were um, women officers there, and he treated them all the same and shook their hands as well, which was very good. Brilliant. Um, yeah, it was it was just a great, humbling experience and one that I will never forget. So now. Sadly, of course, he's died now. And yes, um, my mum rang me, uh, rang me up to tell me um, because she was watching something, and sort of the news broke then on the BBC. Yeah, yeah, I, I was um, not surprised. No, no, because I mean, all right, he, he was ninety nine. I mean, that's a hell of a good stretch. It is. It's a great, a great life, a great long life. Yeah. Uh, I like the fact that he's having his coffin taken to Westminster Abbey uh, on the back of a Land Rover. <laughs> I like that too. It's very different, very unique. <laughs> I half expected him to have had his coffin in a fancy carriage taken down to the River Thames, put on a motor launch, and then sailed up to you know, where the Houses of Parliament are, I suppose, and then transported then over to Westminster Abbey by sailors or something. I don't know. but Yeah, normally for state funerals and uh, as such, uh, the actual carriage uh, with the coffin on is pulled by sailors. Um, but, you know, it, the way it is now and perhaps that, that those weren't his wishes at the time. No. Uh, I don't know. That would, have been, that would have been nice, though, but, you know, if he you know, got this Land Rover yep. and designed it, you know, the way it is. You want to get your use out of it. Well, <laughs> no. Um, being a Land Rover buff, as I have been yes. for a very long time, even though I don't own one anymore, I noticed that it's, um, it's a Defender, actually. Right. I think he may have... Uh, chosen the last of the British land built Land Rovers. Oh right. Yeah. To show that 
it is British, you know. And okay, yeah. Not Indian or anything like that. Oh, yes. Is it Tauta Steel that... Uh, yeah. I've got them there? Yeah, that's right. And, of course, it's very um, utilitarian. It's not fancy at all. There's no, you know, there's no glass around where the uh, coffin will be. It'll be just openly displayed from what i can see yeah it reminds me of uh fred dibner's uh old land rover in a way um what the steeplejack uh, <laughs> fred dibner had um a series three short wheel yeah. wheelbase 88 inch uh it was a two and a quarter liter petrol uh jesus you know your stuff yeah <laughs> Land Rover Owner International magazine uh, offered to restore it for him. Oh, well. And they picked it up, and when they were driving it back down the motorway, they realised how badly the floor pans had gone when uh, they were driving through a hailstorm and the hailstones were bouncing up off the road and into the cab. Oh, Christ. (laughs) And what they did... Then they completely rebuilt it, but they put a V8 engine in there from oh. a Rover V8, you know, so an SD1. Oh, uh, it's yeah. Buick boat engine, really, isn't it? Um, yes, yes. And he didn't like that. He, he wasn't, he wasn't he happy didn't. with that. He, <laughs> he liked it chugging along, you know. Yeah. So, but yes. Uh, I wonder who will drive this Land Rover Hearst. <laughs> well, it's not me, sadly. Um, I I would have no. loved to have done that, uh, but uh, it yeah, yeah that's a good point. I don't know who's going to drive it, but you yeah. know, not everyone can just jump in a Land Rover and drive it. That's very true. Yeah. <laughs> so, all kudos to him. Um, I kind of I I think I'll miss his bluntness and humour. Yes, I, I think I will too. Um, in my, you know, my generation, same, you know, same as yours. He's always been there. Yeah. <laughs> he's he's always been at the side and slightly behind the green. Yeah. Uh, for everything, uh, I've got to take my hat off to him uh, for that. That can't have been an easy job um, or life. Yeah, and 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 I, and I do. I, I have to say, on balance, I had and still have an enormous amount of respect for him. Actually. Yes. Yeah. Even if he is a, yeah. a lizard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If he is a lizard, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, he's done a lot with that lizard life. He is, he's one of the better <laughs> lizards, I'd say. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. yeah he's not just a gecko. No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Some sort of bearded dragon. Yeah. I think that's the best way to. So, on the strength of the fact that, that. Um, that we've, we've got, um, you know, a habit of uh, analysing. Uh, well, Nazis normally. In this, uh, yeah. in this case, he wasn't a Nazi at all. No, he was a jolly good fellow. Yes. So definitely, definitely. There we are. Good stuff. Well, um, I won't be watching the funeral uh, myself. Um, I might watch a few bits. Um, I haven't got any work tomorrow, uh, um, so I'll try and watch quite a bit if I can. I'm. Uh, I am I in that'd work. That'd be quite nice to watch. I am in work. Oh yeah. yeah fair um, it, it'll uh, it'll be a bit awkward for me because there's supposed to be a national minute silence, I think, and 
course when I'm yeah what do you do what do you do you know in your line of work when you do that or when things like that occur well you stop yeah I mean if I if I'm watching the time I'm gonna stop you know but yes yeah but uh you know what if I've just knocked somebody's door and they come to the door just when I'm supposed to ask them to sign for a parcel or something you just stood silently still minute yeah (laughs) Yeah, that, that's going to be the world's longest minute, isn't it? Oh, it really is. It really is. So, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, I'll probably miss that. Wow. I don't even know when it's supposed to be. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I haven't really read. I mean, the details have been coming out in dribs and drabs for this funeral, um, and it's quite a quick turnaround, to be fair. Yeah, I know some things are obviously pre-planned. Yeah, um, but you know, things are out left to you know. Not last minute, but you know things have had to change, obviously, because of the sort of current situation. I suppose. Final question, because we're talking about yes. the current situation. Do you think it was um, something to do with the COVID uh, virus or the jab side effects that may have finished it um, off? I don't. I, I don't think so. I mean, I think he's been quite well isolated himself. Um, and, you know, when he was in hospital and transported, I don't think he was around too many other people. Uh, I think, sadly, personally. But there are there are people who've said that um, they've had elderly relatives who, who were, you know, fairly stable in life, um, who have died within a couple of weeks of having the jab. Oh. And, uh, you know, there are a few people who are suggesting that may have been the case with Prince Philip. Uh, I don't know. You know, he he was of an advanced age. Um, and, you know, some people do have um, sort of things that happen after um, some vaccinations. I don't know. I don't think anyone will ever know. Um, you know, truthfully, um, what he actually died of, um, ever. No, but we're t- <laughs> sadly, we're told that both the Queen and Prince Philip had had the jab. Uh, yes, yeah. I mean, it, and yeah. and the Queen actually backed having the jab. That's right. Um, I'm I'm gonna suggest that they would have been given the best jab. Um. Yeah, probably. Yeah, probably. Because there are there are quite a few concerns about the AstraZeneca one. Um, oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Personally, I'm not concerned about it, but the latest. No, me neither. No. Well, the latest thing that's come out about the AstraZeneca jab is that it's only ten point four percent effective in fighting the South African variant of the coronavirus. Jeez. No, if that's true, that's not. That's just not good enough. No, it's not. No, and that's and why no. there seems to be quite a bit of panic at the moment about the fact that there are cases of the South African variant in the country. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So we we're not out of the woods yet. Definitely not. No. But, uh, but no, like you said, you, you know. I, I don't think anyone will ever know uh, what Prince Philip sort of died of. Um, 
probably been logged somewhere privately. Um, but I don't think it's information that's you know pertinent to the public. No, I mean, and that they will ever get to see. No, exactly. I mean, it's. I I, I would I would think it was probably to do with heart problems. Uh, oh yeah, he, you know he had quite a few conditions. Yeah. Um, probably one of those, sadly. Yeah, I mean, he's he's uh, not ninety nine though. Yeah, it's a good innings. Let's be fair. It's very good. And very good. You know what? Um, I, I heard a dentist uh, once say that um, uh, your, your teeth are only designed to last for 40 years. Oh. And and that is because humans used to be dead before they were 40. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, oh. So, uh, you know, to make 99 uh, is amazing. But you're bound to have something wearing out at 99. Oh, you've got to. Have Simple it. as that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, you know, his life experiences and the era he was born in as well, it didn't really, I know he was uh, royalty, but it didn't really, you know, his, the time he was born wasn't the ideal time to be born. <laughs> no, that's right. You know, during his early life, yeah. um, you know, he'd been through quite quite a hell of a lot, really. Yeah. <laughs> Life. So, anyway, I mm. think, uh, you know, a salute to Prince Philip is in order, actually. Yes, I think so, too. I think we'll yeah. leave it at that, and uh, yeah. we'll uh, see you next time. See you next time. Bye.